is Glenn Lowry. You have tuned into The Glenn Show. I'm at Substack.com, and I'm at YouTube, and I'm with Stefan Alexander, my friend, my colleague. He's a professor of physics. He's a theoretical physicist, a professor here at Brown University. Hello, Steph. How you doing, man? Hi, uh, Professor Lowry. Great to be here, finally. Everybody should know that Steph and I have been hanging out together. He's a jazz musician. Uh, he is a guy that loves a good meal and a good drink uh, and a good conversation. He's a brother from the hood. Uh, he's a Trinidad native born, a graduate of DeWitt Clinton High School. Uh, he is a, <laughs> he's a PhD in physics from Brown University and a BA in physics from Haverford College and has taught at Penn State in Haverford and at Dartmouth, but is teaching now at Brown University. He's my colleague. He's been the president of the National Society for Black Physicists. Uh, are you still serving? No, no, I, I served my two terms and now I am a free man. <laughs> Steph is the author of The Jazz of Physics, uh, a mind-bending uh, reflection on science and art and human existence. Uh, and most recently now the author of this new book, Fear, of a Black Universe, an Outsider's Guide to the Future of Physics. So, um, welcome to the Glenn Show, Steph. It's great to be here, Glenn. Truly great to be here. Um, I've been on a number, I'm going to like embarrass you a little bit. I've been on a number of um, podcasts, and this is the one I've been looking forward to. Save the best okay. for last, the same goes. I'll accept that. I, I, I appreciate that. It's just like when I look forward to you bringing your horn to my house, man. You remember that time we played a duet? I'm a complete hack of a piano amateur. Uh, and Steph is a polished He's musician. Being modest. He's being modest. We even did a little duet for the benefit of some of our guests at dinner one night. Man, I, it was one of the proudest moments of my life playing next to you, Steph. Well, you, you know, Glenn, you're from Chicago, bro. You got swing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I looked you up. I am a theoretical physicist specializing in cosmology, particle physics, and quantum gravity, string theory, loop gravity, loop quantum gravity. Eh. Does anybody other than a physicist understand what you guys work on? Well, I'll tell you one thing. There's a certain um, film company that's sure using a lot of those concepts to make really, you know, um, big hit mo movies, you know, using a lot of modern physics. Um, I don't want to do any free advertising for them, though. That's not the multiverse <laughs> people, is it? Oh, yeah. All that multiverse stuff, that's all coming from um, the kind of research that I've been engaged in. In fact, oh, come on. Um, really? Really? You know, How? How? Yeah. I've, I've seen one or two of them. My wife, whom you know, uh, Lawan, mm -hmm. has dragged me to one or two of these uh, uh, Marvel marvels. Uh, and uh, how is it, how is it uh, that they're deriving from contemporary physics ideas? Yeah, I think that like one of the things I learned from hanging out with um, those folks, um, as you know, I, I was a science advisor for um, Ava DuVernay's A Wrinkle in Time and just hanging out, you know, it's all about the story, right? And I think that embedding some of these concepts gives them more possibility to get creative with the storytelling. So the idea of the multiverse, you know, you can, you know, you can have many stories now happening at the same time and then have them collide in interesting ways. So I think that um, it's really interesting how narrative and storytelling combine with scientific ideas and concepts. In fact, I think like 
I always like to think that a good, a good physics idea has a good story to tell as well. I mean, that's kind of how I, I approach my teaching sometimes, too. As a physicist, do you consider the hypothesis or the speculation of multiple parallel universes to be a priori plausible? I was one of the first pe people, in fact, I would say that when the idea of using the multiverse or the landscape, these ideas that you can have many possible uh, realities, so to speak, or universes, um, with, you know, I stopped working on a particular field. Um, so at that time, I was working on research um, in string theory combined, you know, combined in cosmology. And when that, that idea hit the table, that hypothesis, I stopped for years working on it because I felt it was sci-fi and too speculative. But that was like, you know, 15, 16 years ago. And I tell you, like, it is starting, it is, I think it is plausible. I'm not saying it's correct, but the universe is so weird already. Why not be weirder, <laughs> you know? Okay, so I have a thought, not being a scientist, it might be a silly thought, but the thought is, it's not a scientific proposition to speculate about multiple parallel universes because in the nature of the case, if indeed they are genuinely distinct universes, there'd never be any observation available to an investigator embedded within one universe about the existence of the other. The, the, uh, the verifiability of the claim contradicts the claim. That is, for it to be verifiable would have to be false. <laughs> That's a very interesting point. And I agree with that. Um, so, but there have been people who have been, who tried to get clever and say, well, maybe there's an indirect, indirect way to know about it. And, I, you know, I have colleagues that think about ways of bending around the rules or the axioms. And speaking of axioms, I mean, at some point, I want to ask you about some of your axioms. <laughs> okay, well, I'm happy to talk about it, but I get to talk about my stuff at the Glacier every time. Of so uh, let's 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 delay let's delay that until I ask you some more about about physics, um, the jazz of physics, fear of a black universe. So I detect a certain theme there. I mean that culture is meeting science somehow. That's correct. Uh, that I, that identity has a role to play somewhere in there. No, no offense intended. Um, so, how do you how would you respond to that observation? I think one thread that that connects the two books that I've written, although like in the jazz of physics, it was more it came out as more of a realization in the writing of the book, and then I realized that I should own this. Was really. Um, you know, as a black person and as a person who has traversed the different, you know, you know, coming from immigrating from Trinidad and Tobago, moving to the Bronx, growing up in the Bronx and living in, in a, you know, sort of um, a black part of London. And one of the things, one of the threads that I, I learned, I guess, sort of observed um, through those travels and being part of those communities um, is the immense innovation and creativity, um, discipline, genius that sort of um, you know, was created, um, for example, jazz music, um, you know, hip hop in the Bronx where I grew up. And when, when, you, look, when, I, when you look at those, those forms, okay, those practices, um, you see a lot of parallels between 
you know, what was necessary to create quantum physics and relativity, right? Um, so I sort of see parallels in the sort of craft, not necessarily the learning of physics, but the doing of physics, the doing the, you know, I'm a theoretical physicist. So, you know, what does it take to do good physics, to, to take it to the next level? And I found that I would find some of that in Charlie Parker and Coltrane and Monk, um, some of those elements, some of those gems that would help me strive to be a better physicist in that case. Um, and, you know, also in Fear of a Black Universe, certain elements of, I think, coming even from your book um, really inspired me, the anatomy of um, racial inequality, um, sort of the axioms embedded in that book and learning how to own, how to own stigma, how to turn that into an advantage. So I found that, that again, there was a, um, in those two books, by looking in, you know, looking at jazz music, looking at hip hop, looking at the products that come from our community, um, those innovations, they were, I definitely found some very concrete parallels between that and the doing, the creating of physics, creation of physics. Okay, you know, I've never heard you say it quite that well, uh, Steph. I suddenly think I'm understanding you in a way that I've never understood you before. And we've known each other for a while, I don't know, six, seven years, something like that. I stood uh, in front of a mirror, man, for like five hours, and, I was, and I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. no. I, 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 I improvised that one. But let me see if I do, in fact, understand, because you're saying there's something in the creative genius of a certain way of being able to see and then re-see the world, a way of finding patterns and transforming them into other things or generalizing patterns within patterns on top of patterns, something like that. Yep. Uh, that that reconfigures, that generalizes, that uh, takes to another level. I don't know, sees in another dimension. I don't know, sees differently. Yeah. Uh, and you Let see me give that you an example. The, yeah, yeah. Let me give you an example. I just, so the high school I went to, Dewey Clinton High School in the Bronx, in the 80s, um, there was a group um, called the Ultramagnetic MCs. And they actually rapped about being scientists. Like, they were tough because they saw themselves as having very, you know, um, very deep and, you know, strong intellects. And they rapped about that. Their rhymes were really about, you know, mind-bending rhymes, right? And one of the pioneers of the form, the technology of sampling, so the fact that rappers, it's still done today, would basically make a digital, the, the producers will actually digitally record or sample um, a piece of music um, and then use it to make a new beat. So this guy yeah. said, gee, um, was, um, went to my high school. I discovered that he was the person that pioneers of the pioneered and innovated the following thing. He was able to take a sample. He would sample, say, I'm making this up, um, a James Brown beat of, of a certain length. He would probably sample something else. And what he would then do is that he would literally chop up segments of that sample and rearrange it, reconfigure it, right? In a way that it created something, a completely new piece of music, in a way that you would never be able to recognize where it came from. And I mean, that looks very similar to like recombination in DNA, right? So you find that like, you know, with the limitation that he had, which was using this, this device, this thing to sample, he was able to innovate and create something completely new. And that which what he created Literally, the idea of recombining, right? 
you know, lends itself to exactly what I do when I manipulate certain geometric forms or group theoretic forms in my equations, right? So he really did see himself as being in a lab in his basement and really tinkering with the sampler to create this new innovation, which is now in some of his, his beats, if you look at set G, they're all over the world. <laughs> now, I, I get that, and that's very stimulating. I mean, it, it, it raises a number of different ideas in my mind. One of them is about the role of mathematics, that this kind of pure form of representation, a form of representation that, you know, contains within it many different concrete manifestations that are played out in one way or another. But when you see the generalization, yep. you're able to fit them all together somehow. It also makes me think about, I don't know if you know this book by Douglas Hofstetter called Gödel, Escher, and Bach. You know, it was published it's in my in office. A, it's in my, my office in the fifth floor of Barrison and Holly. <laughs> <laughs> I love this book, man. I read it 30 years ago or something like that. But I, I can still remember the beauty of this argument about how self-reference, the, the idea that you could write a sentence that would refer to itself was the, was the unifying sort of structural uh, notion that connected these different things. So Bach, it's the fugue. It's the, it's the musical form that contains rounds. It contains, you know, like replicas within the phrase of the phrase kind of, you know, or, or yeah, anyway, so I'm not a musician, so let me just stop. In art, it's Escher. It's the drawings of these using the, uh, perceptual uh, uh, fallacies. You know, you, you, you think that something is going down and then you end up, up. You're on a stairway that looks like it's going down and yet the end of the stair is on a higher elevation than where yeah. you started from. This kind of idea. Um, and with Gödel, it's the incompleteness theorem. It's this logical mathematical claim that there are, uh, there are propositions that you can know cannot be proven. Correct. Yes. Yes. You know, so that the logical system has to be incomplete. You have to be able to formulate propositions for which the truth cannot be demonstrated within the system, this kind of idea. All of it turning on self-reference. And I'm looking for something like that. You, I, I can remember your, um, and I, I, I'll take too much time here, but Basquiat, the, the uh, graffiti yeah, artist. The chapter. Mm -hmm. you know, and what's making yes. the graffiti work? And the graffiti has visual representations that are making... Uh, moves, they're, they're doing things in two-dimensional space that are three-dimensional and maybe even four-dimensional character, and he's yes. using color, and he's got politics and art on the same thing, and you know, and plus it's on the side of somebody's building, or it's on a right. subway car somewhere in public. Mm -hmm. He had to sneak right. and do it at night. The whole thing right. is a act. It's a performance of a certain kind of innovative way of being mm -hmm. in the world. This kind of, yes. this kind of thing like yes. that. Yes, yes. Yes, um, the self-referential thing. I think for me, um, you know, uh, that's an interesting point. I wrote both of those books as, as a self-referential um, axis, meaning the book, the writing of the book, to help me jump into new territory in my research. So the book was really used also as a device because at some point I got stuck in my own research and in my own thinking. And I had to get outside the box, so to speak. I found writing the book and writing about the process of research, seeing through these new lenses, meaning in this case, the lens of you know 
how do I talk about quantum physics or the invariance principle in you know that that lives in general relativity or no space time these concepts how do I talk about that um, you know in in a way that um that yeah so how do I talk if I if I make jazz music the focus of or a portal through which I can talk about modern physics, what, com what comes out of it? That, that was the experiment I was running in writing, that, in writing those books. And it did influence ideas. It did actually get me thinking about new physics ideas in my research. Well, I wanted to ask you about that because I can imagine being an Ivy League uh, professor of physics uh, in your uh, mid-career uh, uh, start part of your life and whatnot, there'd be a lot of pressure from colleagues to kind of stay, stay focused, you know, stay on the bottom line, right? You know, you're writing Fear of a Black Universe and, you know, Outsider's Guide to the Future of Physics, you know, but I'm looking in here and I don't see any physics, you know what I mean? I, I mean I'm, I'm looking mm -hmm. for the equations. I, oh, I got a nice little graphic, you know what I mean? And that people would be saying... Well, you know, it's not the proceedings of the National Academy of Science. You know, it's not, you know, like that. Do you, do you get that? Um, I think I, I get it in a more silent way. You know, I get it. Yeah. So I don't get it directly. But, you know, I'm sure there's a whisper network where, where those conversations are being held in my absence. <laughs> I wouldn't, you know, I, w I would be an idiot to not to not presume that. Um, but you know, uh, we have a way of survival in, in our fields of, of respective fields, both quantitative fields. Um, uh, we, we have to navigate, um, those. And I always presume that that's the case. So I, while I'm writing that book, I also, my, I also answer that by publishing very, you know, very strongly and very frequently, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Keep them quiet. <laughs> what do you think about this idea? So there, you're in the technical field, theoretical physics. It's heavily mathematical. I mean, that's the language of the of the field. It's very technical and specialized, and uh, there are very relatively few uh, black people who excel at that craft, or at least have been accepted within the fraternity. Um, and there's a huge gap in the test scores when you do GRE quantitative or whatever it is. And you look at the racial, the population statistics, the overlapping bell curves and whatnot. What do you think? So there's two different claims. One of them is, well, if the, you know, field is technical, it requires mathematical abilities and uh, accomplishments. And if there's racial differences, well, you would expect racial differences in the representation versus the theory that says those tests don't really measure very well who's going to be a good physicist and who's going to be a good economist or not. And uh, if you're getting exclusionary results from the test, you probably need to think about different ways of selecting people for, uh, for your program of study, to which many conservatives, and I don't mean Trump voting conservatives, I mean, you know, people who want to keep doing mm -hmm. science the same way it's always been done would say, come on. Man, I know the difference between somebody who's in the 99th percentile of the distribution of math ability and somebody who's in the 90th percentile. I, I know the difference in terms of how their minds work and how quickly they're able to assimilate 
and process and extend. Calculate, uh, conceive, generalize. I, I, I mean, you know, I, I know the difference and I, you know, I'm sorry, but uh, it's those people, the people who are at the 99th percentile, not at the 90th percentile, who are going to be the ones, by and large, with very few exceptions, who are going to be making scientific advances. Where would you situate yourself in that debate? I think I would I would situate myself um, with a little of both, actually. So let me let me let me um, expound on how I would situate myself um, because my it, it is how I actually um, approach my own sort of evaluation of students, and my, you know I I have to you know I mentor PhD students. I have to train P students to get their PhD. So. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, I make it really clear to those students, look, it is my job, my job before I, you know, you're granted a PhD, I find that you have what it takes is to say, I signed off on a PhD with, along with the committee, is that you're ready, you're ready to go off and actually you have the skill sets, you have the tools to succeed as a physicist. And so I do believe that there are basic competencies um, like, you know, if you want to learn how to fly an airplane, you know, would you go on, go into an airplane with somebody that kind of shaky on a certain tool or skill sets to learn how to land an airplane? You wouldn't, I wouldn't. So I think that likewise in, in physics, or I can just say in general, but there are things, some basic competencies, how those competencies are evaluated, how we screen for that right, may differ. Um, so some people may shine if they're sitting facing a piece of paper with a pen. Some people may shine, may be able to reveal that on a blackboard, showing, showing and telling. Um, and, you know, I've, I've, I've been in situations where students who are really good test takers in this mode, in the sort of sitting writing mode, if I, if I uh, there, you know, there have been semesters where I would give both a midterm that was a written midterm, but then the final would be an oral. You, go, you get on the blackboard and you calculate. And I found, interestingly, that there are some students that performed really well in this mode, in the writing mode, but when I asked them to get on the blackboard and show me a calculation, they freeze up. Um, there's, I don't know, cognitive dissonance, for lack of a better word. So again, I, I believe in, it's important that there are uh, basic competencies that we should agree on for a given field um, at, a, at the different levels that we are, you know, we're testing or we're looking to evaluate. Um, and, and we can debate and agree on what those things are. And I think once we do, then I believe that there are different modes, different ways of evaluating and, and screening for that. And so that's where I stand on that. So therefore, I think that now there's a question of how you how you regulate that and whether it's doable. You know, I mean, at a large university, it's much harder to do that. At a small college like the one I went to with 1,200 students, it may be more realistic to evaluate in a more multi-dimensional manner. Okay, that that's interesting. Do you think there is a racial, black, white, Asian, Latino difference? relevant of the sort that you just got through calling attention to that your point is relevant to how different groups of people are being assessed? Um, that's a good, yeah, that's another good um, point. I mean, it's interesting. I've been, um, 
a college professor since 2005. Okay, so it's like, what, it's close to 17 years now, right? Yeah. No, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I've been a college professor for about 17 years now. So now from my own personal experience, I would say, um, I, you know, I have, I've seen some um, black students walk on water, like, like some of the, like I, has, I just had a student uh, a couple of years ago at Brown. It was a freshman, a first year student, African-American fellow who was sitting in my graduate level general relativity class. And this guy was already taking graduate level math courses and acing them, getting A's. Um, you know, he'll be graduating with, um, he'll be graduating this next year, having completed half of the PhD curriculum for mathematics, pure mathematics. So again, but if you look at this kid, he has like tats in, around his body, you know, like he's one of those guys. Uh, you definitely want, not want to read that book <laughs> too much, right? Um, so, but in terms of, let me see if I want to get your question correctly. You're saying in, in terms of how students are being evaluated differently? Or, uh, you you uh, yeah, made the it? point yeah. that kids might have a, a mm. mastery of skill, a skill set, but be able to demonstrate it in different ways. And that one kid might sit with a paper and pencil and answer questions, get a high score, but not be able to perform at the blackboard. And another kid might not do so well the paper and pencil, but when you tell them, ask them to show you how to solve the problem, they reveal that they, they have a deep understanding. And I was asking, and, I, and that makes sense to me, and therefore you would want to have a variety of different ways of assessing and not just rely on one uh, narrow way of assessing. If the hypothesis is true that people are different in that respect, then it follows from that that you'd want to be different in how you assess. And then I asked, okay, but I, you know, the predicate uh, going into this part of the conversation was there are racial differences in the representation amongst people doing science, doing technical, doing theoretical physics or doing quantitative economics. There's blacks are whatever percent, 12% of the population. And we're like 2% or even less in some of these fields of people doing this stuff. And other groups are overrepresented. Jews are overrepresented. Asians are overrepresented. Whatnot. And when you look at the test scores, the test scores kind of kind of line up with the representation numbers in terms of who's in the very highest rank of the people performing on the test, which does not necessarily proxy their ability. I don't know about this young man who's taking math. My guess is he's going to ace any test that you give him. But, you know, I could be wrong mm -hmm. about that. But anyway, my point was, do you see a relevance between this kind of diversity of assessment and the racial representation. Do you think blacks, underrepresented minorities, historically excluded marginalized groups ought in some sense be looked upon as different with respect to how they show their excellence and that their underrepresentation is partly a result of institutions not adopting a more uh, heterogeneous, more diverse way of assessing talents? Yeah, no, this, um I say, I, I've, again, my observation of all different sorts of students, I fundamentally believe, it is my fundamental hypothesis because it's just a belief system, but it's based on some education, my own interacting with thousands of students over the last 17 years, is that I see no difference in, in, in terms of, in a, if you want to say, um, um, 
you know, the phenotypical representations of race and 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 performance and the poten- potential to perform in in these exams or to ability to do versus other compared to other other races or and also across uh, across gender. I, I see I, I I see that those different forms of intelligence right are randomly dis- distributed across those populations. That's my hypothesis. That's how I approach my students. Now, having said that, I think that there are other factors that can account, I found to be to account for the gap, the performance gap. One factor that I found and I've played on was um, just like this program I founded at Dartmouth called the EE Just program. When I started with that program, um, during that time, this was, I don't know, this was in 2008, I believe. Um, there were four students in that program. This program was designed for um, students from economically disadvantaged backgrounds. Um, and it was named the EE Just Scholars Program, named after the pioneer and black biologist, Ernest Everett Just, um, one of the fathers of epigenetics, who went, who went to Dartmouth. But in a nutshell, the program was, was designed or the I guess the goal of the program was to fix the retention problem. You know, the fact that 50%, I'm sorry, 90% or some large number of students that came into that school to pursue a science field um, didn't, when these were dropped out of that and went to something else. Well, I can say that, you know, four years later, that 20% number or whatever that number was, I don't want to quote a definite number, that number went to 90%. And, and the other thing that was interesting was that the performance wasn't just students getting by. At the, right? Students were excelling. Students were applying to get into PhD program. I just found that one of my students from that program, Jared, I'm going to um, big him up, Jared Boyce, um, just got into an MD PhD program in neuroscience at the University of Wisconsin. And, you know, he's a black kid from, from New York City who went to Dartmouth. And I think one of the main things also was just, you know, a lot of these kids, they didn't have, I'm gonna say, uh, for them, just simply seeing a black professor, science professor, I mean, I'm actually now talking about myself, who actually held them to, uh, who came to them was like, listen, this C is not good enough, buddy. I need to see some A's here. I expect you to do this because I think you're brilliant, but you know what? I'm up till three in the morning calculating. What are you doing? <laughs> like, I think that if you want to call culture within the academy of really having, having them see um, future versions of themselves and see those examples, it's just like, I don't know if I saw Michael Jordan, there was a statement that I think remember, remember sort of Michael Jordan was like, yo, yo, you guys think I have all this talent. Maybe I do but I practice my left hand for hours every day over and over and over again. And oh, we, if Michael Jordan could do that, I should do that too. I think that these things we um, go overlooked. Having more, you know, I'll be honest, Glenn, like, you know, I, you know as a young faculty person, a younger person, I, I used to look at your work and just by, you know, I used to look, go, go get your papers and try to understand the equations. And as a younger person in a quantitative field, I was like, okay, I need to do this. I need to rise to this higher occasion. And this is gonna take some blood, sweat, and tears. So anyway, that's kind of an example of um, what I think is um, possible. Um, so, 
simply put, having more Michael Jordans out there in, the, in, in physics. That, you know, <laughs> I'm not claiming that I'm a Michael Jordan, by the way, in physics. I'm just, Jim Gates is a Michael Jordan in physics, for example, right? should get him on your show. Uh, Sylvester your James friend. Gates, uh, who is a, a very, very distinguished uh, uh, black American physicist of my generation. Uh, MIT. Fellow MIT guy, too. Yeah, MIT. We actually didn't know each other at, back in the 70s at MIT, but we might have overlapped just a little bit. And my late wife, Linda, who was two years behind me in the PhD program in MIT economics department, did know uh, Jim uh, as a fellow graduate student laboring away. Jim in physics, she in economics in the late 1970s, <clears throat> long time ago. But I hear you. I hear you on the work ethic thing. I hear you saying, look, there's just as many black it is not to say what I said. It's not to say that people are lacking work ethic, by the way. It's <laughs> just a way that, you know, it's, yeah, anyway. <laughs> Well, they're either doing the work or they're not. I mean, you're exor exhorting right. them to do the work. So evidently some somebody somewhere was not doing the work, maybe because nobody told them to. They need to be exhorted, but whatever. But I'm I'm looking at these numbers and the underrepresentation, quote unquote, the uh, relatively no, no, low numbers of uh, uh, historically excluded groups, whatever euphemism we want to use here, is, uh, is pretty startling. And, it, you know, you're... You, When I was in college, I'll give you exactly another story. I was in college. Um, I, you know, I went to a typical inner city um, sorry, um, public school um, in the South Bronx called Dewey Clinton High School, as you mentioned. And um, then I went to Haverford College and Haverford recruited for physics. Like, so many of my classmates in the physics major, and there were only about 18 of us, had all like, you know, gotten into places like you know, MIT and Harvard, but they wanted to be at a smaller place. So I was in that environment. And I remember, um, and I think I was the first Clinton students from a place like Clinton to come to Haverford to major in physics in quite a while. I don't want to. Um, and I remember um, at some point freshman year, I got a B in a physics class. And the professor was rewarding me for this. You know, Stefan, this class was really hard. You got, you got a B. You should be proud of yourself. Da 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 da. And I had a friend from Kenya who had scored number. I came, he came in second out of like God knows how many tens of thousands of people in the Commonwealth countries or what have you in physics. So this guy was, um, oh, he had perfect SAT scores. One of those guys. Okay, and he took notice of that, and he goes. He goes, do you understand that this is setting you up like to that a B is good? He goes, no, man, an A is what you should be shooting for. Like B, that's just like this professor has low expectations of you. You should try to, you know, you should be striving to get A's because, you know, that's so anyway, it was interesting, right? That this sort of, um, yeah, that expectation. And, I, and, and for a while, I was proud that I got this B because I was like, yeah. well, I came from inner city high school and, yeah. you know, I'm at Haverford. It's like the cream of the crop and I got a B. Yeah. Yeah. And I look back at that and I'm like, wow, like, you know, that wasn't me. I, you know, I, and then after that, I was striving for, for A's. That's what I was, you know, that was what I was setting my, 
those are my expectations for myself. There's this book about Asian Americans uh, achieving in higher education by a couple of sociologists. They have a chapter in it called The Asian F, and it's an A minus. They, they call it the Asian S because if you come with an A minus, the parents are like, you got to know, what's the minus about? What's the, you know? So that's, mm. that's the kind of thing that you're talking about. Yeah. So cultural. No, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I, and, and my saying this doesn't mean I'm not sensitive and I don't have experience of what it feels like to feel unwelcome in these spaces, to feel the microaggressions and the discouragement and not, you know, you're not invited to study with other people. I get it. I live it. I'm still not invited to, to various, you know, things or, you know, I get this, right? Uh, I've met, I, I am shunned still by certain people in my, in my community. Um, but the, the way I process that is, well, um, okay, that sucks. Okay, move on. Okay, I got to solve this. I got, you know, I got this ambition to solve this problem with the Higgs boson. I got to go for this, you know? So it's like, I use that as a, a way now, as fuel, right? To basically show them and show myself. Okay. I'm I'm just debating with myself whether or not I want to say this. I mean, I have no patience. Go for it. I, I'm not as kind as you. I have no patience. I mean, I think there is no alternative but to do what you exactly got through saying, do it, put your nose to the grindstone and plug away. I think nobody said that life was going to be fair. Life is not fair. Uh, life is vicious. Life, life is tragic. Life is not fair. I'd say... If you're at a place like Haverford College and you're studying physics, you're amongst the most privileged people walking on the planet who have ever walked on the planet. I'd say to whom much has been given of him or her, a great deal is required. Everybody's got a story. You think the white kid doesn't have a story? You think the Hasidic Jewish kid doesn't have a story? You think the hillbilly kid from Kentucky doesn't have a story? You think the rancher kid doesn't have a story? You think the gay kid doesn't have a story? Everybody's got a story. You go wallow in your story? You can't get your head out your own butt long enough that you're so full of the story that you've got. What was me? What was me? What was me? Shut the fuck up. That's, that's my attitude. Nobody promised you anything. You got to take it. Get busy. Yeah, I mean, uh, Charlie Parker, I forget how many hours he was practicing. Um, they knew they had to create it. They were like, okay, we can't get, you know, the bebop. We can't get into those bands. <laughs> we can't get into those, um, you know, into those big Broadway shows. Um, you know, we got to, you know, we got to create a whole new, a whole brand new musical form that is so good, that is so musically, you know, intricate and beautiful, right? How do you create that? How do you do that? That's bebop, right? That's bebop. Um, it, you got to dig deep, you know. As you said, nobody's gonna. I'm not expecting me. I'm not expecting to get those jobs because I'm not. So they have to dig deep and create something new. As, as it's so, I think it's parallel, you know. To that is very much, I think, part of also the African American tradition. Somehow, in these modern times, we're not re either not of, we're not aware of this tradition. That actually, you know, that that this is that's this is what we do 
in moments, you know, where, where we don't have access. So, like, we're badasses. We know how to work hard. We know we are, you know, we are brilliant. We know how to, to be creative in any field we go in. So it's funny you say that because I did, when I was at that place, Haverford, one of the things they, um, we did was we visited the, the basement where the Underground Railroad was. And that was a good enough reminder to, to realize, you know, the, you know, yeah, that some people actually, you know, sacrificed and died and did various things for me to have the privilege to pursue and learn and, you know, try to master a field like physics. So that what? So that one day I can be in a situation to teach it and to make a contribution. Um, so, yeah, I, I actually, when you said what you said, I resonate with what you said there. I mean, I wouldn't, I, you know, I, I wouldn't be, I'm not as direct as you are. I'm a little bit, you know, I'm the good cop, you're the bad cop. How about that? I am a widower who remarried four years ago to a somewhat younger woman and I need life insurance. If someone relies on your financial support, whether it's a child, aging parent, or even a business partner, you need life insurance. Life insurance can give you peace of mind that if something happens to you, your loved ones would have a financial cushion to pay for things like rent, mortgage payments, loans, education costs, and everyday expenses. Having coverage through your job may not be enough. Most people need up to 10 times more to properly provide for their families. Typically, life insurance gets more expensive as you age, so it's smart to get a policy sooner rather than later. Click on the link in the description or head to policygenius.com and answer a few questions about yourself. In minutes, you can work out how much life insurance coverage you need and compare personalized quotes to find your best price. You could save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. Their licensed experts will help you understand your options and apply for a policy. The Policy Genius team works for you, not the insurance companies. You can trust them to offer unbiased help and advocate for you at every step until you're covered. Since 2014, Policy Genius has helped over 30 million people shop for insurance and placed $120 billion in coverage. Head to policygenius.com to get your free insurance quotes and see how much you could save. Okay. I'm okay with that. I could be the bad cop. I am the bad cop. There's no doubt about that. And yes, you are the good cop. Okay, so let's talk about the book. Um, Fear of a Black Universe. Even though you're rocking an NWA t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I know. And I know you got the Chuck D on the back of your book, man. Uh, Public Enemy founder right. endorsing your book. What does he say? He says, the rabbit hole gets wrestled here. This book may be the best ever answer to what is soul. That's pretty high praise coming from Chuck D. Yeah, and actually, um, he told um, my um, publisher that he had to read the entire book before he gave a 
So he actually read the entire That's book. That's impressive. I was very proud of that. What is there to be afraid of? Who's afraid? What, what's the, what do you mean a black universe and an outsider? You're a professor at the Ivy League. How are you an outsider? <laughs> I'm an outsider because I choose to be one. Um, so the way I look at the outsider is like I think about you have a you know you have an inside and an outside, and there's a boundary between inside and out. Um, so, and there are many different domains. There are many different categories for you know a space you may occupy where you're the insider, and where somebody's an outsider. I mean. You know, we can talk about that. Um, in physics, you know, there is the outside of there. There are many different domains. So, for example, if I'm working in one particular field, right, and um, and the people, the people that work in that field, let's say it's, you know, people that work on, I don't know, the different forms of quantum gravity, ways of approaching unifying quantum mechanics with gravity, and there are people that work in one field, one subfield of that. They may say anybody that work, does not work on that and works on the other thing, they're an outsider, right? Um, and there's a boundary. We won't give you access. To, you can't. You're not invited to come to our work, our conferences, and we won't hire you if you want to be a postdoc, for example. So there are different ways. And, I, and the way I look at that, the outsider thing, and why I consider myself or that there's a sense in which I am an insider, as you said. I'm an Ivy League professor of physics. Um, I'm the editor of a, you know, a decent journal. Um, but there's a sense in which I feel um, I'm an, you know, I am an outsider. Um, you know, and there are many things, I think, that, that contribute to that. Um, I'm, you know, I'm a physicist that brings in ideas from other fields, from music, for example, to influence my physics. So I bring in my palette of tools is not simply just equations and um, theorems and things like that, but, you know, I might draw from other, from other fields. I, I actually talk to economists sometimes about how you guys use statistics in your field, um, how you use a Gaussian distribution in your field and trying to get some intuition, some new types of intuition. So I think my willingness to talk to others in some ways um, makes me an outsider from people who sort of rigidly define, um, you know, what the norms are in a field and what the norms are not. Um, but I also come at it from a perspective of, from a positive perspective. It's it's my the outsider thing that I'm playing with here. I played with in the book. It's actually coming from a place of this is a ben this could be a benefit. This could be something to be celebrated, um, rather than a woe was me. Um, that there are certain things that you can benefit from if you are if you pay attention to it with the outsider status. Okay. What do you mean, fear of a black universe? <laughs> um, that title is a play on words. Number one, it was a it, it was a clever or trying to be clever nod to Public Enemy's book, Fear of a Black Planet. So you know the premise of that book, were, that 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 album was maybe there's some intrinsic fear that um, the the black population has grown too fast and 
if it goes out of control and now they are the dominant, should we, is there some intrinsic, sub, you know, sub, subconscious fear about that? And of course, you know, uh, Public Enemy goes into explaining some of that in their lyrics, why there should be some fear about that. Um, I guess my plan that was a fantasy maybe, well, what if the day comes where there are enough, you know, that we, it's a dream, right? And what if like, you know, not me, but if like some of my students, you know, the face of what no, the next set of Nobel Prize winners in physics would be are people that look like you and I, like, um, you know, that would be celebrated, but that would, would that change the perspective that people have um, of things that we, the expectations that people have? I think that there was a, there's a play on that. There's a play on, you know, we sometimes refer to dark matter and dark energy, these mysteries um, in, in, in physics, um, that, you know, the vast majority of, of, of the energy and matter in our universe is in completely invisible. And we, we call that dark energy. So black and dark, again, I, it's a play on words, of course. So, you know, to solve those problems, um, they which appear to be impossible to solve in terms of where physics is at now, might require us to engage um, in new ways of thinking. Um, do we have a fear of in, in entertaining some of those that that thinking? And of course, I use stigma. I use the fact that, like, if you look in the history of physics, examples where certain physicists were who did break new ground, who did make major, like, you know, um, paradigm shifting innovations. Um, at that time, they were the laughing stock. They were stigmatized for that idea. Michael Faraday, for example, right? He, he was a laughing stock when he said that magnetism, right, has invisible lines of force, invisible, you know, woo-woo black magic stuff. And it turned out that James Clark Maxwell basically proved that, you know, with the Maxwell equations. And it is the basis of, it is a fundamental paradigm of physics today that everything are made up of fields, you know. So it's about embracing that. And it's about embracing that fear that maybe to break new ground, we have to also entertain that which we are most afraid of. Um, and it doesn't mean, one last thing, that you sacrifice, Right that you sacrifice knowing and mastery of the, of, the, of the respective field. You have to, in order to do that, you have to, um, you know, put in all the effort to mastering what's known. You need both, though. Okay. A fear that the answers might come from outside and the problems being of such a nature that it may take someone who is not on the inside in order to really see. Does this apply? Uh, I ask this with trepidation, uh, Steph. Does this apply to the Jews? I mean, I notice, you know, from Einstein to Richard Feynman and everybody else in between, there's a lot of... Jews in the pantheon of uh, great of great physicists, just as that's the case in economics. I just mentioned that on the side, not relevant to the point at hand. 
But definitely the Jews are outsiders, right? I mean, in European history and the periods absolutely when these discoveries and advances were being made, these people, I don't know them very well, their biographies, perhaps you do. But having looked at it from the perspective of a black man uh, coming into this discipline, have you reflected at all on what the experience, the social experience of the Jews might have to say about their prominence amongst the contributors to the advance of theoretical physics and other fields too? I have put some thoughts. I mean, you know, I've had the, the great fortune of having been trained by a, a handful of great Jewish um, physicists um, um, going all the way from high school all the way through my PhD. Um, and um, and postdoc, but um, I would say actually I draw my inspiration actually from the history of um, of Jews in physics and you know some of my so for example, and you know it is my understanding that even when Albert Einstein you know made his great accomplishment by revolutionary revolutionizing physics, um, the Nazis you know tried to diminish that and actually, you know, call it Jewish science, yeah. you know, like to, right. So there was a camp. So, you know, I, when Einstein came to um, Princeton, New Jersey, I think he felt some kind of um, connection with the African-American community in, in Princeton um, as well. And as you know, he himself uh, was a civil rights, a black civil rights activist. He was friends with Paul Robeson and W.B. Du Bois and so I think that there is this um, admiration I have for the fact that they were um, um, stigmatized as well. And it is also my understanding, and I stand to be corrected, we could fact check this, that um, at least at some point, at some point in, um, in Europe, um, um, physics was not deemed to be the job to have. It was sort of like, you know, there were these jobs, and you guys can't have these jobs. But why don't you go do this? And um, the Jewish phys Jewish physicists um, made major contributions to transforming and revolutionizing physics in a place now where, right now, everybody wants to do it. Now it's like you know, it's creating our cell phones, the quantum revolution, right? So I think that um, the little knowledge I have have always served as a source of inspiration for me to dig deeper and to transform whatever outside in this I feel as a black person in, in, in physics, right? To look to, you know, um, um, yeah, to, 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 to look to, the, um, I'm going to say my, my Jewish predecessors, physicists, right? Um, as a source of inspiration, because, you know, they made it happen in the face of, um, of, um, you know, not being in the club. Well, I have a classic story about that, which I've told here in conversation with the historian Daniel Besner at the University of Washington. He interviewed me here at the Glenn Show about my own education coming up at MIT. And my, my teachers, uh, Robert Solo, Paul Samuelson, Peter Diamond, Frank Fisher, Stanley Fisher, Marty Weitzman, you know, and others, many others who were Jewish. 
mm-hmm. the story basically you talk about outsider was that the economics department at MIT became a great department and it was in the 70s maybe the best department in the world certainly one of the top three or four departments in the world and I was a student there it became a great department largely because Harvard had not been willing to extend a chair to Paul Samuelson in the mid-1940s when Samuelson was 10 years past his PhD but had already established himself as one of the great economists of the 20th century. I mean, you know, clearly, I mean, there there were debates. I mean, Samuelson introduced a kind of mathematical analysis that wasn't as commonplace in economics, and some people had questions about whether or not there was a methodological reductionism and everything was being lost of the texture of problems by reducing them to these formal models. So so there were legitimate debates about that. But Samuelson deserved a chair at Harvard in 1947, and he didn't get it. And he came to MIT and uh, did Jewish science (laughs) (laughs) to the tune of like a half dozen Nobel Prizes by the time we speak of people who were a part of that that, uh, revolution (laughs) at at MIT. Uh, And... You know, anti-Semitism was was uh, in the air uh, at that time. And Samson came along, and the faculty there were very self-consciously socially oriented and uh, encouraging of uh, you know someone like myself to to try to make a career in economics. So, so that's all true. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's very interesting. Um, I see I see some parallels even in my own career. I was like, you know, one of the professors that really took me under their wing. But again, they took me under their wing from a from a place of tough love. Um, but, you know, I responded to it because I wanted, it was a sign of taking me seriously. This professor, I mean, um, his name was Leon Cooper, um, who won the Nobel Prize for superconductivity, um, fellow New Yorker. And, um, you know, he, he would like just come up to me and, you know, um, in the elevator, we used to take the same elevator ride when I was a grad student. And, um, and he goes, what are you thinking about today? And I'd say, um, well, I'm thinking about X, Y, Z, whatever cosmic strings. He goes, okay. What, uh, and then he would just throw out some crazy hard physics question at me. And I would have to answer it right away. And he'd be doing this over and over again. Like, you know, just, um, and then one day he goes, I asked a question, and he goes, he looked at me, he goes, do you really believe in what you're doing? And then he left. Wow. But he actually, later on, took me on, he took me on as a PhD wow. student. You know, um, I was, that was my first advisor, and then I switched fields. But we remained in touch all throughout my career. Um, and he, this guy was a curmudgeon. This guy was always pushing me, you know, I would, you know hey, Professor Cooper, I, I won this award. Okay, that's good. Are you working on a real physics problem? You know, it was like <laughs> that kind of stuff. Right? Okay, I got. But excuse me, I didn't yeah. mean to interrupt you. You were talking about Leon. Uh, let, let me ask you something, or maybe answer something. Yeah. You you raised uh, the idea of my book, the anatomy of racial inequality stigma, and I wanted to run something past you because I think it's connected with your outsider thing. Mm. So in the book, people can buy at Harvard University Press. It's been put out in a second edition, 2021, uh, The Anatomy of Racial Inequality. Um, I try to... I read it. (laughs) I try to develop (laughs) an idea idea about a certain kind Mm -hmm. of what I call biased social cognition, a certain kind of anti-Black effect 
that's not discrimination and that's not stereotyping. And it's, 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 it's different. And I, I want to see what you think about, since you're using this phrase and whether it comports with the way in which you are, which you're using it. I got it from your book, actually. That idea I got from your book. That book, that idea was embedded in my book. So I, I say yes. that people have models of the world in their head that they use to interpret their data. They, they, they have crude explanatory matrices. They have a framework. And that the way that they arrive at the framework is not entirely rational. It's not strictly deductive. It's not only driven by evidence. It's driven by meanings. Put that word in quote. Meanings as distinct from, from logic. The meaning is a kind of pattern recognition conformity thing. It feels right. It's intuitively plausible. Not, not that I have done an estimate and my estimate is 6.5 on this parameter, but rather that the framework that I'm using through which I will see the world and interpret evidence feels right to me. Can I ask a question? Can I interject and ask a question yes. very quickly? Does that also include comfort? Well, yes, it could. I mean, in, in the cognitive dissonance of discomfort that might come if a certain narrative is inconsistent with what I presuppose to be a, a good fit. I'm made uncomfortable by the fact it doesn't quite fit. Um, and I'm, I, I have an example, and the, the example is uh, men and women, blacks and whites, and disparity. So I see a disparity, men and women, and it makes me uncomfortable. I see a disparity, black and white, and it doesn't make me so uncomfortable. In the uh, uh, academic discipline, it might be that gender disparities are much harder to give an account for but people may be more able to assimilate ethnic racial disparities into their framework without it triggering a sense of, of disquiet. Or another example I give is incarceration, where men are vastly outnumbered amongst the people who are put in jail relative to women. Blacks are also vastly outnumbered relative to their number in the population compared to whites. But whereas we might think mass incarceration by race is a problem, we don't think mass incarceration by male-female is a problem at all. We, we accept the huge racial uh, male-female disparity in punishment because we really, deep down, our social meanings associate violence and law-breaking and uncivil behavior with male more so than female, that kind of idea. Mm -hmm. So what I, when I'm talking about mm -hmm. racial stigma, I'm saying... The, the tendency to embrace an essentialist explanation. So we're confronted with the fact relatively few theoretical physicists who are black amongst all theoretical physicists. Mm -hmm. What is the account that we're prepared in the back of our minds to entertain for that, for that fact? Well, blacks just aren't up to it. They don't do that good at mathematical subjects or whatever would be one kind of account. The account that you gave was very different. You said, no, you don't believe and have never believed in your experience contradicts the fact that there's not just as many black people who are brilliant at this, that, or the other. But you said, and then you had your accounts that you gave, which is an non-essentialist. It's not intrinsic to the people themselves, this kind of thing. Yeah. So stigma is the inclination or orientation to settle for quasi-essentialist accounts 
of racial disparity uh, rather than interrogate your model. I mean, because it creates a problem, right? A, a problematic, a, a whole range mm -hmm. of problems. I've got these disparities. I am committed to an uh, anti-essentialist axiom, my axiom of anti-essentialism. How do I account for these disparities without repairing to essentialist accounts? That throws up a whole set of problems to be investigated, which problems will never be investigated by the stigmatizing observer who thinks, well, that's just the way they are. What's the point in us worrying about? Yes. Um, so the, it's interesting because one of the sort of stigma part is, is interesting because why is it that, you know, stigma is sort of like, I got to keep this, this, you know, somehow this will muddy up or what is the word for this? You, you know, when I think stigma, I want to keep Pollution. away, you know, this, this, this is, this is uncomfortable. This is, this gets in the way of what I'm trying to, what, you know, what this, what I'm trying to do here. Um, and I walk in a room and I am, you know, a six foot five towering black man with a baseball hat on. And, you know, I got a bunch of quantum gravity stuff going on in my head, but I walk in that room and, you know, just a bunch of characters from the Big Bang Theory. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, you can run that experiment and have some hidden cameras yeah, and yeah. see how that we, they deal with that stigma, how both sides deal with the stigma, as you call You know, that, that thing is running in the back of your, or maybe the prefrontal context, or maybe the medulla, wherever it's running. But... I can tell you that um, those types of physical threats, so to speak, you know, I've definitely um, experienced that. I've definitely tried to figure out ways to mitigate that. I got to tell um, you a story. And um, well, yeah. it's kind of mm -hmm. like you would be telling this story, except I'm the one telling it this time. So I'm a professor at Boston University. It's in the 1990s. And I'm, I'm pretty, uh, you know, I'm a university professor, okay? I'm in my 40s. I mean, I'm, you know, and uh, late 40s. And I'm at the Japanese restaurant having a solo lunch. And these guys from uh, the uh, operations research department in the business school walk in and sit down at the table next to me. And they start talking about queuing theory. So queuing theory is about cues. It's about lines and random arrival and random service and the probability distribution of how many people are in line after a certain length of time based upon the stochastic arrival and the stochastic service. Except their problem was different. Their problem was a stoplight in an intersection. And how long would the length of cars be waiting at the intersection at a red light based on different <laughs> stochastic flows of cars on, on the two different roads that were intersecting each other? So they, they just talk and they just talk in queuing theory. So I'm listening and eating my lunch. And uh, at the end of the, uh, of the lunch, as I'm walking by their table, I lean over and I say, have you seen the paper by Schmidt uh, on this, uh, this aspect of queuing theory? It was just a guy, this paper that I read 10 years before when I was, uh, you know, doing a little bit of research on queuing theory. And do you know what this guy, this white guy uh, said to me? He looked up to me and he said, what? who are you? He didn't say, yes or no, I have seen the paper. He didn't say the paper is relevant to the mm -hmm. problem that we were discussing. He said, who are you? 
to have to have an idea. He didn't vet my idea. He didn't. He he was made uncomfortable by the fact that the idea was coming from me. So I pulled out my card. I said, I'm university professor of economics and fellow of the Econometric Society, Glenn Lowry. Who are you? (laughs) (laughs) What did he say? (laughs) He was flabbergasted. He said, I'm sorry. Well, I, I got another interesting story. This is when I was a postdoc. Um, I was at a conference in Germany. Um, and I, you know, tra- you know, there's a usual thing. People around, huddle around the corner. And I no- noticed that there was an interesting conversation going on there. So I kind of hover over, kind of like, you know, listening and leaning in. And they were talking about some Alexander, this Alexander thing, <laughs> right? So Alexander's uh, mechanism or what have you. And... It turned out that it's actually, it was a paper that recently written and people were talking about it because it started a little thing in the field, okay? So I'm like <laughs> listening in. And oh, by the way, I had 15 years worth of dreadlocks oh, your, at the time. Your story so I wear suits, but I had to, <laughs> I, okay? So then, so then at some point I jump in because I feel, you know, normally I don't, but I, I felt empowered because they're talking about my stuff. So... So I, I, I forgot what I said exactly. I said something about, I kind of injected an idea. And so some of them looked, looked and they continued talking over me, right? As if like, you have, you don't exist. So now I, I got a little bit, you know, a, a little bit agitated. And I was like, actually, no, you know, I think that this is, I kind of pushed back. And then they were like, it was a kind of similar, like, who are you kind of thing, question. <laughs> Um, or what are you doing here? You know, you don't know what you're talking about. And I said, actually, I am, Ale- I am that <laughs> Alexander you're talking about, who's work, right? And you should have seen they the look in some of their faces. Right. Right. And no, I, it was a very enjoyable, one of those moments in my career where I was like, it rarely happens, but when I was like, wow, that's, um, this is like from, from out of a movie or something. Um, yeah, but I, uh, Glenn, I, um, I think that, we, it's funny, we talk about all these other, you know, the other isms and the, the reasons why we, why there's a problem, why, you know, you know, say blacks don't succeed or maybe we shouldn't be doing science. Maybe we're not, it's not, you know, it's, it's a white man's language. We often hear that. Um, and um, there is something going on, but it's none of those things. I think it's closer, like, you know, when you are uncomfortable, when there's stigma and, and you can't speak of it because it's stigma by definition, then, and that, that, that's right. So for me, one becomes, through stigma, you can become an outsider um, and that not because you are actively deviating or actively doing anything wrong, just by default of the stigma that comes with, you know, with the phenotypical, what have you, projections. And um, as you say, this, this, um, I, you said it better than me, so I'm not going to attempt to say it again. Um, but I, that, I, 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 I resonate with that, with that concept. And therefore, I think being able to, to um, how do you work with that? And I think like the outsider thing in my book, which is to say, okay, I can now see clearly that I, you know, that People on they feel they feel uncomfortable just with me being in the room, so to speak, for these other reasons um, that is unspeakable. Um, 
But the flip side of that is, well, I don't have to worry too much about being kicked out of the club. <laughs> so maybe I can think these thoughts. And sometimes I might hit a jackpot because maybe one of those thoughts that everybody else is afraid of having might be a pathway um, to the solution of the problem, right? So learning how to, how to um, see also the advantages to the stigma um, and, and also realizing that if it is stigma, then guess what? You're acting more of a low life than I am, actually, and pretending to be, you know, um, you know, um, uh, whatever, a, a more evolved human being. I mean, the fact that if you're exercising stigma without yourself, what was the word? Using any kind of self-referential, um, you know. Um, I get it. Yeah. I, I, I get it. it it's a... You know, you're tough, Glenn. You're tough. You actually take you take me to these conceptual domains that that um, you know, quantum physics is is much more comfortable for me. Well, okay, then let's uh, <laughs> let me ask you this: What is the Higgs boson, and why should I care? Um. Oh, you should care a lot because it is, you know, we tend to call it the, 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 the nickname of that thing is called a God particle. It is a particle that plays the fundamental role in endowing matter with its mass. Um, it's not the sole thing that does it. I mean, there's a footnote behind that, but, you know, um, and we have a model called a standard model, which is a mathematical, physical model, um, a set of equations that basically predict and encode um, all of known physics, um, at least three of the, of the four fundamental forces. And the Higgs boson plays a central role in that theory. And it was predicted to exist in the 60s. Actually, one of my professors was one of those people, Jerry Gralnick, and, you know, the usual Peter Higgs, Englert, Brout, Kibble, Hagen. Um, and it is a particle or the field. It's a field. Its vibrations correspond to a quanta or a particle. That is that plays um, a central role in making sure that the standard model works as a model to explain the three to to explain the workings of the three um, fundamental forces. These forces are the electromagnetic force, the weak interactions, which is a, a nuclear interaction, and the strong interaction. Um, and so the Higgs particle plays a central role in that. And we discovered the Higgs particle. A few Nobel Prizes were given for that discovery. Um, but going beyond now, we're trying to understand what's behind. You know, so there's some problems, even though the Higgs particle has been discovered, um, there are some issues that point to, say, at the end of the day, we're, we're after this idea of unification, of, you know, how do we unify gravity with these three forces? Um, or what else is out there that we're missing in our in our description of physics so for example the standard model and the higgs uh, although it exists and it's a beautiful um you know theory does not account really for dark matter and dark energy uh, does not really fit in nice with gravity so some of the stuff you know and um i i'm working on is connecting the higgs particle to cosmology Right to the happenings in the universe, the happenings maybe with something to do with the Big Bang. So I'm I'm working on something now. I can't reveal it. That that basically connects some of the problems that we face with the Higgs particle 
um, in collider experiments and, you know, certain instabilities or divergences in the equations and how that could actually be um, accounted for or resolved by putting the Higgs particle, the Higgs field, in a cosmological context. Okay. But, you know, you you feel the Higgs interacts with you as you're sitting because you have mass. Oh. The Higgs is, you know, it's a real thing. It does exist. It's, in, it, it's a thing that makes things that's you know, I have should mass. Care. It's a feel. So it's for real. That's why we should that's, care. Uh, that's beautiful. Uh, well said. Uh, I think it's time to call it. I got a, another meeting, actually, in a few minutes, so I think we should probably call it. Uh, conversation number one between uh, Steph Alexander and Glenn Lowry at the Glenn Show. He's talking about his book, Fear of a Black Universe, an Outsider's Guide to the Future of Physics. Uh, he's my colleague at Brown University and has been my guest here. I'm so grateful for you giving us some time, Steph. Thank you, Professor Laurie, and it's, um, I look forward to doing it again, if um, you were so ever to um, extend. Uh, okay, well, I, I would love it's that. a date. Uh, we, we're definitely going to do it again. Take care for now. <laughs>